0: This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit RedemptionAZ.com. This morning, we're going to take some time, slow down, and allow God to minister to our hearts, to receive nourishment from Him on rest. The Hebrews had been enculturated over centuries not to rest. They were slaves. Um, And because of that, their uh, whole approach to relating to God was skewed. They were unable to be silent before God to hear His Word, to be formed by that. God had designed us to take time, created in His image, to pause, to step out of our labors, and to be with Him. And the world is always pushing against that. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we live in the largest economy in the world. And there's a price to that. There are not many invitations in our world where we live to stop and to rest. I just came back from Kuwait, fellowshipping with some brothers and sisters there, And I heard stories of Filipina sisters in Christ who are working as maids in that country, and they're not allowed to leave their homes and worship the Lord. They're not given a day of rest. Our passage this morning, it's a long passage, Exodus 35 through 40, uh, but it begins with an invitation or actually a command for the Hebrews to rest, and it ends with, God himself taking rest in the tabernacle. And so that's going to be our focus this morning. I want to invite you to stand up. We're not going to read the entire passage, but I wanted to read with you the beginning and the end of the passage. And this is from the ESV. Exodus 35, 1 through 2 Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. And then the end of our passage, Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe you recognized... Uh, the creation story uh, in those two passages that we just heard. We read after God, over a six-day period, uh, created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we read, On the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. In fact, what we see in the book of Exodus is a recapitulation of God's work in the original creation story. Scholars now know that when the Bible says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that God intended the heavens and the earth, that is the universe, the totality of everything, to actually be a temple or a tabernacle in which God and the capstone of his creation, man and woman, would commune with one another. In the ancient Near East, this construction of a tabernacle was represented by beginning with a place of chaos and moving to a place of order and quietude. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that everything began with this darkness, but we're told that the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, was brooding, sort of like a mother with her children, was brooding over the dark, wow. and from the Word of God came everything. Amen. Order from chaos. When we read these ancient creation stories that the Bible is sort of reacting to and perfecting, uh, what we see is it was typically a seven-day period at the end of a temple's construction where the people would celebrate, and the deity, whoever that temple was being dedicated to, it was understood in the ancient world that on the seventh day, he would rest Now, here's the key point is that resting is not so much ceasing from labor because guess what, folks? Gods don't get tired. (laughs) It wasn't so much that the God ceased from labor, but that the God chose to abide or be present with the people of that temple. That's what it means to rest to engage in our relationships. We all know what it's like to be working constantly and all of a sudden our marriages are becoming fragile. The relationship with our children, our grandchildren is becoming fragile. We know that intimacy and relationship requires vulnerability. It requires time. It requires an investment. After God created the heavens and the earth as his cosmic Temple, he focused in one place called the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is the equivalent of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. We're told in Genesis chapter 2 that Adam was placed there to Avod and Samar, to cultivate and to keep. Those exact same two verbs in Hebrew are used to describe the work of the priest in the tabernacle. The priests were called upon by God to cultivate, to develop, to continue on, and to guard or to protect this sacred place where God would be present with His people. I want to talk a little bit this morning about two ways in which God is present to us. Theologians like to use this word omnipresence. Omnipresence is really the point of Genesis chapter 1. You can't get away from God, folks. (laughs) Right? Jonah, who we just studied, tried to get away from God, but that was meant to be a joke because even though he went the opposite direction, there's no getting away from God. The psalmist says you can go into the bowels of Sheol and you're still not going to get away from God's presence. God is omnipresent. That is all present. But folks, that's not necessarily a comforting truth, right? We all know what it's like to be lonely. And we know theologically that God is present, and yet there's not that connection. There's that lack of intimacy. So while theologically we know that God indwells His universe, how does that minister to my heart? omnipresence is not necessarily a relational truth. God is present with atheists. Mm -hmm. And so there's a second level of presence in the scriptures, which the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden speak to. It's what theologians call God's relational presence. And we miss it when we focus on the word tabernacle. The word tabernacle is just from the Latin word tabernaculum, and that just means tent. But we can't stop there. When you go into Exodus, the Hebrew word that Moses uses is mishkon. Mishkon um, means a meeting place. Mishkan is a meeting place, and it's related to the verb shikan, which means to abide or dwell. This may remind you of Jesus looking out at his disciples and and saying, Abide in me, and I will abide in you. This is a place in which we can relate to one another. In the Garden of Eden, God and the first human beings walked and talked with one another in the cool of the day and so the tabernacle is a repeat if you will it's plan b <laughs> i don't like that word but <laughs> maybe we'll maybe it's safer to say that it's almost the garden of eden god has once again provided a way to be relationally present to his people, but it's different than what Adam and Eve enjoyed. Number one, the tabernacle is a restricted place. You don't just get to walk into the Holy of Holies. In fact, only priests, male priests, at this time were allowed to enter into the first tent and to deliver the bread and offer the frankincense. And then when it came to the Holy of Holies, the Garden of Eden, only the high priest was allowed to enter. And then just for a very brief moment, once a year, where he would go and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which we'll come back to in a minute, to offer atonement for the sins of the people. And then he would depart. The tabernacle was also a mediated presence of God. Adam and Eve walked with God. They were able to look at his face. (laughs) But now God presents himself as transcendent. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, comes to Moses, but now he is an invisible reality behind the flame of a bush. He is, I am who I am. And so, God now chooses to reveal Himself through the service of the priestly service in the temple, the actions of faith, and also in the symbolic structure of the tabernacle itself. But as you all know, a symbol is different than the reality. It's indirect. It's poetic. Finally, the tabernacle is a human construction <laughs> God created the heavens and the earth. God formed the Garden of Eden, but the tabernacle is a human construction, and it is patterned after a divine archetype. God gives them the blueprints and even says to Moses, do this exactly as I command. And so the architecture comes from God, the architect, and yet it is still something constructed by human beings. One of the things I was struck with when I was reading through Exodus 35 through 40 was how orderly and peaceful the process was for constructing the tabernacle, right? It's the complete opposite of the rest of the book where humanity is in constant rebellion and failure, but when it comes to building something, right, something with our hands, something that we can sink our teeth into... Right, It's easy for us to build Towers of Babel and all these sorts of projects. It was interesting how easy it was for the Hebrews to throw in all their gold and get behind these projects. And of course, this was all ordained by God, but we must not forget that just before this scene, they had constructed a golden calf. Yes. Wow. Humans are always biased towards what is most obvious to them, what is on the surface of things. And so Jesus wants to educate us out of that. In fact, brothers and sisters, we know from the New Testament witness that Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle. Amen? Yes. yes. That's where we have to go this morning in this sermon. Jesus is the ultimate Tabernacle. The tabernacle was called a tent. The apostles Peter and Paul referred to their bodies as a tent. In God's blueprint, while there were these beautiful tapestries on the inside of the tabernacle, the tabernacle had to be covered with animal skins. Death. Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle. His body, his skin, his flesh is the means in which you and I can now abide with God. Amen? The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, brothers and sisters, do you have confidence this morning to enter the holy place? Do you realize that your ancestors were barred from that? (laughs) We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, hear this, brothers and sisters, let us draw near with a heart. With a true heart and full assurance of faith, which our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Um. For centuries, the great teachers of the church have used the architecture of the tabernacle as a means of meditation, as an aid for you and I to draw near to God. This meditation is nothing about earning your salvation. You and I are already mysteriously united to Christ. We are one with Him. Paul says that you and I are mysteriously already at the right hand of the Father. Our salvation is secure, but we're tired, aren't we? (laughs) We need restoration. Maybe we're lonely this morning. We're hurting. And so my prayer is that by meditating on these essential items in the tabernacle, that the Spirit would meet you in this, and it would give you rest. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the tabernacle together. We're going to go through the first curtain or the first veil, And we're going to meditate on the lampstand, the golden lampstand. We're going to look at the table of what's called the bread of the presence. And we're going to pause and look deeply at the altar of incense. And then because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I are going to open up that second veil, that second drapery we're going to go into the holy of holies, we're going to go into the darkness, and we'll see what we see. One of the things I thought was significant was that all the utensils outside of these two curtains are made of bronze, right? It's great to win a bronze in the Olympics, right? I couldn't imagine the feat that would require, but we all want gold, right? So, it's interesting that everything outside the tabernacle was bronze but everything inside's gold. Ooh, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and the lampstand, the tables covered with gold, the the altar, the ark, it's all it's all gold. There's an important truth there, isn't there? Yes. Right? <clears throat> We're all eating whoppers with cheese and just inside is this Kobe steak, right? <laughs> we get we get so fixated on the bronze. And yet there's an invitation here for gold, but you have to draw closer to God. The lampstand. I think it's interesting is each of these items in the first tent um, require us to use our senses. Right? That's, That's a good meditation when we bring the totality of our sensory experience to the moment. And so the first sense is sight. The lampstand. This was a seven-branched menorah, and at the top of each of these branches was an almond blossom that opened up for a place where an, an oil lamp would be placed. Mm. And inside were wicks, and it was the job of the priest to make sure that those wicks were always lit and that those lamps were always filled with oil so that that light would never go out. There were no windows in the tabernacle, and so if that lampstand went out, it would have been pitch black. John the evangelist says that Jesus is the light of this world. He says, Jesus tabernacled among us, and that the light in the darkness shines. Right? Jesus is like the sun, S U N. We don't look directly at it, and yet by it we see everything. Well, that's St. Augustine, Jeanette, not me. So <laughs> gotta give cred to the Father, Church Father. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you, sister. Yeah. Yeah, it's Jesus that allows us to see, right? And, and, of course, we live in a world where everyone thinks they sees, but they're blind. Yeah. I know that there are some people here this morning that when they look into a mirror, they think they're ugly. That's not how Jesus sees you. Could you imagine? And we look at their home and say, oh, I, I don't like my home. I don't. Jesus helps us see beyond the surface of things. He helps us gradually see the truth. Jesus is also the altar of incense. This altar was a place where the priests would come and they would offer up incense twice a day. They would come at nine in the morning, then again at three o'clock in the afternoon when the animals were being sacrificed in the outer court. And they would go, and what was interesting is that the people would participate in this ceremony. And so when the priest would go in and offer up the frankincense, all the people would gather outside of the tabernacle and then the temple, and that was when they would offer up their prayers. Why? Why? Because it was a beautiful symbol. As that frankincense rose up into the heavens, so did the words of their prayers. And the book of Revelation tells us that God's angels collected that frankincense, collected those prayers, and they held on to those requests until the appropriate time. One of the things that we learn from Scripture is that God does respond to our prayers, yes. but it's in His timing, <laughs> yes. Yes. right? Yes. And His timing doesn't always link up with our timing, and that's painful. And yet, Revelation tells us that God doesn't lose one of our prayers. Wow. And one of the things that we learn in this journey of faith is that Jesus is the ultimate answer to all our prayer. Yes. That's the great lesson. It's what Jesus accomplishes. In fact, you know the story. We're going to be moving into Advent over this next month. You know the story of a priest named Zechariah who finally was called up from the minor leagues and was allowed to go into the temple to offer up the incense of the prayers of the people. And so he goes in there and an angel of the lord meets him in that and says god has heard your prayer right and then that leads into the incarnation and then revelation tells us that god hears our prayers and that they will be realized ultimately and finally at the return of That's jesus good. christ That's good. And so the altar of incense is an invitation for us to relate to God, to talk to God. The altar of incense is a reminder that our prayers are efficacious. They matter. If anything, that's what you do with someone you love. Watch a relationship deteriorate, and I guarantee it's the lack of verbal connection there. Right? Not talking with one another. And then we come to the table and the bread of the presence. The altar of incense speaks to our nose, our smell. The table and the bread of the presence speaks to our taste. Right? The New Testament writers said, Have you tasted that the Lord is kind? The bread of the presence, what would happen here is um, Josephus tells us, uh, he was a historian from the time of Jesus, that this bread was unleavened, right? And so it was meant to remind the priests of the Passover bread. And there would be 12 tortillas laid out. (laughs) Yeah, a little updating there. And there would be two two rows of six. And so it was meant to represent the 12 tribes, right? And what it was, was a meal. In addition to the tortillas, there were bowls for libation offerings where you would put wine. And so the invitation there is to fellowship, to have a meal with God. The the, the bread was always there, always there. And it was up to God if God was going to join the meal. Right, But the priest brought the bread in, and it would sit there for six days, and then on the seventh day, they would replace the bread with fresh bread, because you don't give stale bread to your guests, right? You give your best to your guests, right? And so they would lay out the 12 tortillas week in and week out perpetually, Right? And it just went on and on and on until one day a guy named David, who was going to be a king, he's hungry and led by the Spirit. He walks into the tabernacle and he asks the priest, my mighty men are hungry. Can we eat something? And there was nothing available. And so the the priest is like, okay, well, you can have the showbread. You can have the bread the the presence, right? And so David audaciously takes that bread, eats a little bit of it himself, and then he shares it with his mighty men. And guess what happens? A thousand years later, Jesus is like, hey, why don't you guys, you're hungry. It's Sabbath, I know, but why don't you rub some wheat between your fingers and eat those kernels, right? And then a Pharisee walks up and says, how dare you eat bread on the Sabbath, right? And Jesus says, oh, did you read about David? <laughs> I know you can't see, but someone greater than David is here. Yeah. And I'm taking care of my 12 uh, apostles. Yeah. I'm taking care of my people. Yes. Mm. I'm going to sit and I'm going to dine with them. Yeah, Amen. So good. Amen? And that's just the first curtain. How much time do I have? I've got a ton of time. <laughs> yeah. I'm go all morning. <laughs> I won't, I promise. And so let's go through the second curtain together. This is a harder place. I think God gives us the first curtain, and He gives us those sensory experiences to really form us in our faith. Um, These are the gifts, especially to new Christians. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're not in the tent, there's, gonna, there's an invitation. There's always an invitation here when we're taking communion together. We're always over here. We'd love to pray with you yes. if you'd like to come into the tent and join us. It's faith. But the second curtain is a little more challenging. And like I said, only the high priest would walk in there. The first thing that you notice is there's no lampstand in the Holy of Holies. It's completely black unless God chooses to illumine the situation. And this parallels Moses' experience when he walked up Mount Sinai. And before he met with God, he had to penetrate a cloud. Right? There's this mystery of God's imminence and transcendence in this passage. Right? On the one hand, you all know God. You have the Spirit of God within you who illumines your minds. You all know God, and you have real knowledge of God. And now what I'm going to say is equally true. You don't know God. You don't know anything about God. God is utter darkness and mystery. And don't you forget it, right? Because this is the problem with humans. We love to construct things. Right? We love to construct theological systems. <laughs> right? We create these little boxes. Right? And then when God doesn't fit our box, we lose our faith. Yeah. Or when there's another brother or sister in Christ whose box is a little different, you don't accept her. Um. Right? There was a poet who said, Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, wow. but thou, O Lord, art more yes. than they. Yes. A part of the Christian life is unlearning. <laughs> so it's not just learning. We, we learned a lot of bad things about God in Egypt. Yes. Yeah. Maybe from well-meaning people. But we all have idolatries. And so by going into the Holy of Holies and going into that darkness, it's an opportunity for God to strip us of our falsehood, to humble us in our ignorance, Mm. and to open us to what it's ultimately all about. And that takes us to the mercy seat. The only thing in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark were two cherubim. You can see a picture of it there. And the cherubim were these awful, terrifying angels who would cover their eyes with wings because of the glory of God. And by putting the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, it was meant to remind the high priest of the fall. Because we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, that God drove out Adam and Eve. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. Wow. When we come into the Holy of Holies, you and I face our deepest fear why we're not able to rest. We face our mortality. We face the brevity of our lives. We deal with the futility of our work. And we surrender the ultimate idolatry, which is that we can save ourselves. The Holy Priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the lid of the of the ark, which was called the mercy seat. In Hebrew, it's called the kippurit. And in Greek, it's called the hilasterion. And in English, we translate that as propitiation. Theologians like, like to talk about Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. That's very abstract. Christians don't see that. But now, brothers and sisters, you can see what they're talking. Jesus is the lid of that ark. And so when the priest sprinkles the blood, the blood representing your life, my life, that we forfeited because of our act of rebellion against God, that the Father chooses to look at the blood of Jesus Christ and accepts you and I in His place. Amen? And not only are you and I accepted in his place, but we're drawn into Jesus' resurrection and life. Yes, yes. It's our means of union yes, with him. Yes, yes. It is the only way that we get to be at the right hand of the Father. Yes. Yes. It is the only way. Yes. Yes. Christ alone. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Hallelujah. It's that reality that we ultimately have to surrender to. Where is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is here among us, because God is present with us, and the tabernacle is in each of our hearts. The reformer Martin Luther wrote, in the tabernacle fashioned by Moses, there were three separate compartments. The first was called the Holy of Holies. Here was God's dwelling place, and in there was no light. The second was called the holy place. Here stood a candlestick with seven arms and seven lamps. The third was called the outer court. This lay under the open sky and in the full light of the sun. In this tabernacle, we have a figure of the Christian man or woman. His spirit is the holy of holies where God dwells in the darkness of faith. (laughs) Darkness deepens faith. Where no light is for the believer, for For he believes that which he neither sees, nor feels, nor comprehends. His soul is the holy place with its seven lamps. That is all manner of reason, discrimination, knowledge, and understanding of visible and bodily things. His body is the forecourt open to all so that men may see his works and manner of life. Right? It's wonderful to be in church with you where in all of our vulnerabilities and brokenness and even our wrestling with sin, God is shining through us. Amen? Yes. God is shining through yes. us. Yes, yes. Right? Showing the world the reality of his presence. And each of us is a walking invitation. Yes. The band can come up if they'd like. Um, maybe in light of this text, we could call them the Levites. Uh-huh. Huh? <laughs> <clears throat> Levites can join in. And I want to just leave us with a few applications. Brothers and sisters, any time that we are tired, we can go into the holy of holies of our heart. God is always there. And that is where the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, wants to refresh our spirit. Right? I don't understand what the human spirit is. It's mysterious but it has some special relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. And it's a way in which the Holy Spirit can minister to our spirit and can bear the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And yet it's a relational thing. We have to come to Him intentionally. It's where the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, refreshes our spirit. It also is where the Spirit renews our minds and hearts, where for six days we're constantly around idols and yet it's an opportunity for our minds to be renewed and our, our, our hearts to be drawn from the bronze of this world to the gold of God, yes. to move from externals to internal beauty. Yes. We can assemble in the tabernacle of his body, the church, like we're doing this morning, and be edified by one another's gifts. It's where we offer up our spiritual worship, Paul says, because we are all priests, Man and woman, we are all priests. It's where we come together and we offer up the incense of our prayers and we wait in faith upon God's ultimate answer in Jesus Christ, where we come together and we receive the bread and the wine. I know that this table is not gold. This is Alhambra gold. (laughs) But the table and the bread of God's presence is available to you this morning. And so I ask as we worship together that maybe you would see as you walk up the invitation to draw near to our Lord. Amen. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.